1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Dr. John Callow about his book titled The Last Witches of England, A Tragedy of Sorcery and Superstition, published by Bloomsbury in 2021, which is a fascinating account, um, I, mainly of an incident in 1682 around witches and witch trials, but really Actually, a much broader study um, than just that sort of one year and one time period in one place, thinking about what did it mean to be a witch um, in this period in England? Um, What role did the law play? Did society, did socioeconomics, did gender relations play in this English understanding of witches um, pretty late on in the sort of era of the witch trial? So it's a fascinating book that is about a particular time and place and about a much Um, wider sort of understanding around that. So, John, I'm very excited to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Miranda. It's lovely to be here.
2: Could we please start off with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book?
1: Well, I'm, I'm working in the history department at the University of Suffolk in Ipswich, and I've been in academia a lot of my working life for over the last certainly 25 years. And Got off to a start really looking at witchcraft in my postgraduate work when I was at Durham doing my MA, and I was really, really lucky to have Jeff Scar as my tutor over in the philosophy department, and I was interested in looking at mechanisms of persecution, why certain people in the early modern period got into trouble with the law. And certain people didn't. And Jeff suggested to me which is as being, you know, the easiest, most containable way to look at a persecutory impulse in a way that would fit with the context of an MA. And really, I went on with that ever since in one form or another, and Biddeford lent itself so well because, as you said in your introduction, it's so late, it's so different, it's different because we're looking at an urban setting rather than rural, we're looking at a place of richness rather than necessarily uh, a place of poverty, we're looking at tensions between in and out groups, but it challenges everything maybe we think we know about witchcraft, because this, after all, is supposed to be the age of the Merry Monarch. Uh, the You know, um, Dryden's comment about a very merry and thinking, quaffing time under Charles II, a time of exploration, a time of the Royal Society, a time of innovation, and basically a time of fun. And none of that really registers in Biddeford, or the cases of the last three women we know to be hanged in England in August 1682. So it seemed the perfect local forensic pinpoint study that could maybe open up wilder fields of inquiry
2: that is um, a very good reason to study a particular place when it kind of goes, hang on a second, this is a bit odd. Um, So I'm wondering if we could kind of start there, I suppose. Tell us a bit more about kind of what Biddeford was like. Why was it such an odd place to suddenly have a whole bunch of witch accusations?
1: Well, Biddeford certainly is an odd place. It's a boom town. It's wonderful if you get to explore it today because its its rise was contemporaneous with the, the, the witches, essentially from the late Elizabethan period up until the time of, of Queen Anne. It is the big tobacco port into England. So it's, it's really the second place in the country for the tobacco shipment. So... Bidifordians probably had more in common with their, their kinsmen and their fellow countrymen along the Chesapeake than maybe they did in other rural, more rural parts of Devon. So its trade, its wealth born upon the sea. We haven't yet got the terrible advent of the slave trade. That hasn't happened at this point within a British context. Even though the Royal Africa Company is set up under the future James II, that doesn't touch Biddeford. What comes into Biddeford is tobacco. What goes and, and actually fisheries, uh, fish rather, from the Newfoundland fisheries. Um, what goes out is pottery the work of the gunsmiths who were there, and the coal that was being mined, certainly during the Civil War period, in the town itself. So it's rich. It's a period of, um, well, great expectations, if you like. You've got a a class of merchants and seamen who, by their endeavours, are making an awful lot of money through trade. But after the Restoration they're also pretty shortly deprived of their power. So the great families that had taken it for granted that they were going to be the mayors of Biddeford, the strange family, the Beals, the great pottery dynasty that was working there, the great masters of men, the, these creative classes who really taken the town to be their own, are suddenly pushed out after 1662, Um, with uh, the Clarendon Code, amongst other things, and the sweeping of um, the provincial government of anybody associated with anything other than uh, loyalty to the Cavalier Parliament and to the Church of England. So you've got this dissenter community within Biddeford who had been the top dogs, who are now completely cut out of power. So that's one reason Biddeford is a bit strange. Another reason is really because... Nobody is who or where they're supposed to be. So there's an absentee landlord. The uh, Granville family, who had been the lords of the manor, have gone off. Um, you know, their great success story under under John, who's uh, nobled as the Earl of Bath under Charles II, the king's great and foremost mate, just go away. They're at Whitehall, they're building their stately home, they're not terribly interested in what they see as a bit of a backwater in Biddeford. The The uh, rectorship has changed hands as a result of people being literally thrown out of um, the vicarage with the return of the king, so there is a tension between the 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 natural government, if you like, of the place that has at almost a stroke been swept out the door, and new people who were chosen simply because they were of the right political and religious persuasion, they're Tories and they're Anglicans Parachuted in, so it's uneasy in that sense. It's uneasy because of religion. It's uneasy because of the the large dissenting community who are, of course, being fined under the Conventicle Acts at this period for not attending services and for holding church, um, you know, home church meetings, effectively. And then the last reason that Biddeford is a bit bit odd, really, is because of the gap in welfare provision that the rich are getting richer and richer. And richer, and the poor are getting poorer and poorer and poorer. There's no safety net other than a few private charities, and this is where the three women of Biddeford, are witches, find themselves slipping through the open fibres of that net and into a life of grinding poverty and experiencing the hatred of their neighbours.
2: Well, that's a perfect setup. Then, thank you for my next question. Who are these three women?
1: Well, they're They're all unfortunates. They are distinct and distinctive because they are marginal in all the ways that counted in an early modern um, setting. They're marginal because of their age, They're old. They're not as old as former writers thought they were, actually. Temperance Lloyd, the the leading witch, who's described as the grand dam of them all, in one of the the pamphlet accounts, is closer to her 60th birthday than to her 80th. But because of a life of grinding poverty, all of them appear far older than they are. So they're, they're marginal because of their age. They're marginal because of their poverty. Most of them, in fact all of them, have been uh, on receipt of parish relief for more than twenty years, and we'll go through who they, who you know, their particular biographies in a second. They're marginal because of their gender. They're women, and they're women without any um, kinfolk, any men in a patriarchal society to back them up, any children to speak in their support. So they're marginalised in that sense. And finally. Um, you know, there's also the the area of their marital status, that they are all single women, but in different ways, so we'll run through them quickly. Temperance Lloyd is the one we know most about because she was the most vocal, the most striking, the one that the, the writers of pamphlets concentrated on, even the judiciary concentrated on her the most. She comes from a Welsh background, and... Um, the immigrant community who'd settled there to work the, the anthracite mine in Biddeford during the Civil War. She's probably, as her name suggests, from Puritan background. Her husband has deserted her by the early 1660s. She falls back onto parish charity. Her kids seem to either have died or more likely seem to have left when her husband abandons her. So she's thrown back on charity quite early on, she's described, you know, she's not described as other women in the poor relief, books are as the widow such and such so she's seen as being somewhat outside respectability already and by 1671 she's got a name for herself as a witch as somebody who does bad stuff somebody who uses curses somebody who overlooks people because at that in that year she's arrested and tried at exeter um she for the for the murder supposedly of a husbandman a local farmer uh now she's acquitted of that because she denies it and maybe we can discuss that later so she's been poor for a long time, she's friendless, she she lives in absolute poverty by begging and she has, as I say, this somewhat eldritch reputation surrounding her. The second of the witches, Susanna Edwards, is the only one who was actually Biddeford born and bred. Even then things aren't quite right for her. She has a pretty bad start to life. She's illegitimate in um, a staunchly puritan town and if you look at the parish registers her extended family group account in this period for about 25% of all the illegitimate births in Biddeford so you know give a dog a bad name and all that kind of thing she's somebody again who carries opprobrium with her from her early life but she makes quite a good marriage. She does all right. She's the one who falls the furthest, actually, in terms of her of her social status. Again, her, uh, the play comes to Biddeford in the aftermath of the Civil War and the Tramp of the Armies and sweeps over it. And her kids are some of those who perish. Her husband dies similarly. So the widow Edwards, in her case, goes on parish relief. She's forced to beg. And that is essentially the tragedy of her life she falls in it's quite clear why they do it sometimes you find in the in the receipts of charity that there's clear evidence that bands of women were begging together and it's obvious why they do that. It protects them from assault. It pre- protects them from abuse. It protects them from sexual assault. So they find some some sisterhood together. And she begs at certain times with Mary Trembles, who's the third of these women. What I should say is that Temperance Lloyd has very little, in fact, nothing to connect her with the other two women. Edwards and Trembles... Together, Lloyd has nothing in common with them, probably than other a nodding acquaintance and a shared uh, poverty. Mary Trembles is the least known about. She's almost silent through through all the records. She doesn't really find her own voice. She had been mired in poverty through her entire life. Her parents come to Biddeford as uh, new immigrants. This time from uh, the Protestant. Um, Probably the Protestant North of Ireland, or the Pale around Dublin, they set they settle there, and they're immediately on parish relief. Her father, the wonderfully named Trojan, or it sometimes becomes Trudging Trembles. So you have this vision that he's, you know, his grand uh, Homeric name is even that is taken down the social scale. You have the idea it's his, you know, it's his performative gait that people are remembering rather than necessarily his Christian name. He and her mother beg in Biddeford and they die as beggars in Biddeford. Mary Trembles knows nothing else, so she's on her own after their deaths. Um, We're not even terribly sure how old she is they die at presumably a fairly ripe, ripe old age just a few years before the, the accusations come as 1682. So that's our cast list. There are two more women who could have been Biddeford witches and they're Mary Beer and Elizabeth Caddy. They're brought in for questioning on witchcraft and are accused by their neighbours uh, a few weeks later at the end of July 1682, but they're acquitted and they're treated entirely differently in all the proceedings. They are effectively bailed, they're not, they're not um, sent to the local lockup at the end of the long bridge in biddeford they're not tormented by the mob they're not even questioned publicly by the justices of the peace and this is because they do have a support network they have men and children and family who are to who are there to support and to speak for them they've got local influence they've got friends and they've got money so there are effectively 5 Biddeford witches, but the spotlight settles on the three for the simple reason that they were have nots, and the two haves slip very quickly back into comfortable obscurity.
2: Mm. That's a very um, interesting distinction, and um, thank you for sort of summarizing the histories, I suppose, um, of the three women so effectively. I want to therefore link kind of your first answer to your second, sort of the idea of the wider. Um, environment and changes that were happening within Biddeford and and more broadly, with the kind of stories um, of these three particular women, to what extent was the accusation, the accusation of these women of witchcraft in this time and place, um, you just sort of described it very helpfully to us, kind of based on their personal histories, what made them in a lot of ways quite vulnerable. How can we understand these particular accusations against these women within sort of the wider Um, economic, political, and religious context that you um, explored when helping us understand Biddeford generally?
1: Well, I think with all these things, I mean, that's why the study of witchcraft in the early modern period is so fascinating, because there are gaps in the evidence that you can never say for sure, but you can, get, you, you can check off those things that are less likely or are more likely. You could have a reductionist argument that said it was solely because of their gender. Now, I'm not dismissing that, but you can see in terms of the different treatments of Mary Beer and Elizabeth Caddy that it wasn't necessarily as simple as just misogyny straight down the line. You could say... Possibly that it was a result of them being different because they were outsiders. From a, certainly in the case of Trembles and Lloyd, that they were respectively Irish and Welsh. So there could be a sort of xenophobic fault line, you know, inside Biddeford. That that I think is less plausible because you might even argue. Given the, given the Thomas family were their, their accusers, but actually Temperance Lloyd's problem is due to fault lines within the, the settled Welsh community within Biddeford, so it's a bit more nuanced than it, than it might have been. It's not diametrically opposed, you know, the English simply against the Irish and the Welsh. I think also to follow on that is they, they all have one thing going for them, that they're all Protestants. Um, which again offsets that sense of being maybe ethnically different to a far greater extent than maybe such things would would count today. So, within all of that, they are, I think, unfortunate for a number of reasons. Their their accusers, if you imagine that they are marginalized an older group of women who are poor and who live by begging and who have as i said no familial support their accusers certainly in the first case are far more well they're younger women they're women who have family support who have modest well more than modest incomes from their family groups and in fact who are quite affluent so again it's a have versus a have not tension between their, their initial um, accusers i think the the other things that that gave rise to these these charges actually lie, lie in it in the nature of begging itself what is it that beggars do or don't do that leaves them open or makes them look like agents of the devil. And I'd suggest if we think about this in purely modern terms, <laughs> some of the studies of modern begging and the way in which you can decide to be entirely passive. You know, sometimes you see, you used to see it in Prague, but also I've noticed it here among people who've come in from, from the eastern parts of Europe, people lying prostrate in the street with a tin cup and you know a little note begging you for the sake of god to leave them some pennies or pounds there's there's that form of begging or what you know tony blair used to refer to in his questionable wisdom as aggressive begging on the streets and i think certainly temperance lloyd at times falls into the category of aggressive begging she's she's not she's not got strength she's not got particular agility um or any of those things, what she has got is a tongue. And I think it's fair to say that by the 1670s, she was finding that she could supplement her income if people were just a little bit scared of her. So if we take the analogy of of today, you can imagine, you know, we've all done it. We've all passed a, a seller of the big issue in the street. You feel the natural guilt that you can't give to everybody who asks for it. If then you take a few steps away and somebody murmurs something at you that you half hear, that can stick with you. Now, put that into an early modern setting. You've refused charity. You've taken those few steps. You hear the murmur past you, the words that you don't quite hear. You maybe get the sense that they're a little bit threatening, a little bit, you know, um, you know, Like the Wizard of Oz, I'll get you and your pretty, pretty, you know, your little dog too, kind of thing, and that stays with you. If then misfortune hits you or your household within days or weeks, that sense of guilt at refusing charity can pivot and turn to hatred. I think very, very rapidly. If you think that you have been cursed by one of these women, and that's certainly, I think, what instills itself within the fabric of Biddeford society. And Temperance Lloyd is incredibly unfortunate. She is incredibly socially ill-adept. So when she tries to be deferential, when she goes up to Grace Thomas, who she's accused of bewitching in the street, falls to the floor, blesses her, says, you know, Mistress, I'm so glad you're taking the night air. I'm so glad to see you improved at last. That was meant to be a nice thing. That was meant to be the thing that showed her sympathy for her sister. That was the thing that was supposed to have got her a penny or two and a pat on the back. What it does as this sort of, you know, this elderly figure clad in rags flies at her screeching, uh, actually affects is sheer terror. And this repeats itself. Similarly, in the in the marketplace in Biddeford, she's fallen on her feet a little bit. For once, she's got some gleaned apples to sell. And a child wanders up and takes one from the basket and runs off with it. And His affluent mother thinks this is a great joke because she can't sympathise with Temperance Lloyd's plight, the very fact that an apple was nothing to her or to the child, but it was the only source of income that this poor woman had. Temperance Lloyd follows them, remonstrates with them, and uh, sends them away with a flea in their ear. So the joke turns sour pretty quickly and turns particularly sour when the child withers and dies in a matter of weeks, and of course, that cause and effect is almost going back to the idea of Disney and um, Sleeping Beauty. You know, the the gnarled hand proffering the apple becomes the cause of fresh allegations. So it's to do, I think, with poverty, to do with different difference, to do with a lack of protection at any level in their society, and the sheer unfortunate makeup. Uh, of the women themselves that laid them open to such charges.
2: Mm. Very much a confluence of a lot of different factors. Um, yeah, as,
1: as I think witchcraft trials always were, they're not monocausal. And that's why, you know, Witches as Neighbours is such a great book, because it, it it takes this idea that these accusations come at a grassroots level. It's because these things have been simmering away for 20 or 30 years as they had in Biddeford. And one of the problems these women have in Biddeford is they can't leave it easily. If they'd have had the means, they can't cross the toll bridge because that would cost them money. They, you know, they can't jump on a ship and go somewhere. So their lack of mobility, their physical mobility and their social mobility means that they end up as being perceived as a pest rooted in a community that doesn't want them.
2: So you've, you've explained to us um, very much the wider context and the specific context of these women and the two incidences as well that kind of um, create these lingering fears and resentments. So perhaps just briefly, um, before we move on to kind of the reaction sort of following the accusations. Um, how exactly were the three women accused of witchcraft?
1: Well, Temperance has, has a long backstory. She's arrested for it before in 1671 and 1679. Um, so she's got a name already as a witch the the sort of the the tipping point though comes on the 29th of june 1682 when a magpie starts up at the window of a merchant's house into grace thomas's room the east churches who are her in-laws who are you know well-to-do shopkeepers would be merchants uh east church himself styles himself rather grandly as a gentleman and the creature gets entry into a chamber grace thomas has been up all night the women of the household are convinced she's on the point of death she pulls through to the morning and then at the very point they're they're recovered a bit bleary a bit tired understandably emotional this creature starts up at the at the women cleaning the chamber, flies around, dashes itself against the window before finally breaking free, and it terrifies the household. What then happens, just as they're calming down at this thing starting at them, they're telling the story, they're, they're round the table downstairs, and they hear something scratching or something under the eaves of the house by the door. They, they fling the door open, And there is Temperance Lloyd, literally eavesdropping. Now, if only, and this is where I say her luck fails her at every conceivable point, if only she'd stopped and explained, it might have diffused the situation. What actually happens is that she turns on her heel, because probably she's been as frightened as they are by the door flying open on her, and she runs off up the street. So the appearance of the bird becomes linked to the appearance of the woman. And they have this idea that the bird is not, not just a little scavenger. What it is, is a familiar spirit, an actual agent of the devil. And if you think about the way the three women are operating, they're begging, they're scavenging, they're gleaning, they're doing all these things that these animals their supposed familiar spirits which include birds which include pigs there's loads of stuff because the the barrels that bring stuff in from the Chesapeake seem to have just been dumped on the quayside and frequently frequently upset so you get all these things coming down from the local government in Biddeford saying would you just clean up the quayside because the spilled tobacco the spilled meat the hogs are running riot there there are rats and cats and everything, you know, having a having a field day down there. And these women are gleaning on exactly the same items. So the depredations of the animals and the depredations of the beggar women reinforce each other within this idea that familiar spirits are the, the demonic accomplices to the witch within English witch theory. So, that is the spark that leads Temperance Lloyd down. Similar bad luck attests the other two women who are begging together. So, so Susanna and Mary turn up again at, the, at uh, a well-to-do shopkeeper's house, and it seems fairly obvious that they'd been welcomed there before. They know that this is a relatively easy touch, that the man of the household will give them scraps. What they're after is a halfpenny worth of tobacco. Yeah, that's all they want—a bit of meat and a bit of tobacco—to make their lives a bit, you know, just a bit more comfortable. What they get is the woman of the household, the guy's wife, who tells them in no uncertain terms to go away. There's an altercation with Susanna Edwards; words are spoken in haste, and then they make the fatal mistake of going back a second time later in the day, in Easter, sixteen eighty-two, to to have a further conversation and a further try. And the fellow is still out and they meet with his wife and the household servants again. They're turfed out and even worse words, fly. So again, there is the idea of the beggars, the familiar spirits, the curses, drawing down bad stuff upon the household. So that's essentially
0: the spark
1: that leads to their arrest.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: of multiple things kind of all coming together and very much a case of kind of at every possible moment it could have gone wrong for the women it it did um which is really quite interesting when you think about kind of how many things had to go a particular way um, to end up with not just kind of someone muttering under your breath oh they're a witch um but it really escalating to such a degree and one of the things i think is particularly interesting about kind of this escalation aspect is obviously the accusation doesn't stay in that moment um Experts are brought in, other people are brought in to kind of build on it. And I was particularly interested in um, your discussion of doctors and religious men, both from within Biddeford, but also from outside as well, um, who maybe didn't necessarily believe in witchcraft at that point, um, but were very willing and sometimes even quite eager to support the idea that these women were witches and should be tried accordingly. So can you tell us about kind of the impetus, I suppose, um, from these doctors and religious men?
1: Well, the fragmentary evidence, and it, it, it's it's hard to uncover and it's hard to be definite about, but certainly when Grace Thomas sickens, when the farmer had sickened in 1671, when a little girl had died in of, you know, um, of disease in 1679. The the response of the apothecaries in Biddeford and the physicians who are brought in by the families is is one of complete confusion. They cannot put their finger upon why these these people have died, and they come to the conclusion that witchcraft plays a part and this is something that the grieving families seize upon interestingly in 1679 the father of the little girl who died won't hear it and he says it's nonsense it's not witchcraft you know it's just the will of god that she sickened and, and got ill but the other groupings Latch on to this explanation of witchcraft. There is evidence that at least one, if not two, witch finders, are brought in from outside as experts. And again, the fact, as I said earlier, that nobody is who they're supposed to be in Biddeford is deadly as well, because this character, the Reverend Francis Han, turns up, who isn't actually the the. The, the vicar at Bideford at all, Ogilby, the the guy who's been put in by the Earl of Bath, isn't liked. Got himself into all kinds of trouble and fisticuffs. He's accused of looting the uh, the um, collection made for the for the Barbary captives, the English sailors who'd been taken from the, the Devon coast by the Corsairs um, he's accused of being a drunk he's accused of living the high life all these kinds of things um, so he's he's kind of at arm's length from it all and of course nature and politics both are poor vacuum so what happens is this character Han insinuates himself into the parish because Ogilby isn't Terribly bothered actually with taking services. He's far more interested in beautifying his own little garden, um, planting hedges, bringing in fruit trees. He has a wonderful set of new church plate that's given to him by the Earl of Bath. He's there really living the high life. Han insinuates himself, and I think Han is the sort of one of the real villains of the piece in the sense that it's possible to see him going out. Of his way to make his career and his fame as being the detector of witchcraft, using all the you know the latest demonological tracks. and he, I think, is certainly a spur to the prosecutions. So it's not this idea that there is you know early modern England is not this sort of morass of rather stupid folk um, wandering around, dreaming up witchcraft allegations out of their stupidity and their, their prejudice, the allegations in Biddeford are settling because a swathe of the elite, a swathe of the educated class are prepared to promulgate them and people latch onto them because the, their betters are basically saying that this is something that is there and it's there on account of scripture, it's there in classical writings, it's there in the fabric of the law. And that is a particularly deadly combination.
2: Hmm. It is, really, especially when you list it so clearly. Um, Quite a deadly combination that doesn't seem to have necessarily very much to do with whether or not these people actually believed witches or witchcraft were still a thing, um, which is a really interesting thing to consider and perhaps explains to some degree kind of why we see these witch trials at a point that's maybe later than we might have expected um, that there are other impetuses for it, not just necessarily this idea that we might have a sort of early modern or medieval people thinking that witches were kind of everywhere at all moments. Um, there were other sort of reasons involved. Um, and I wanted to ask you about kind of one of the th- this idea of kind of making a name for yourself or um, sort of whose voice is in the record, because something that, um, is clearly very was clearly very difficult because. Of course, as we've talked about, these women are marginalized. So how their words and thoughts were recorded um, is not something we can take for granted. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, Temperance Lloyd's confession and what we kind of can and cannot learn from it, how it was changed or why. Um, And it is something that technically is said to be her own words, but you tell us the story is actually a bit more complicated than that. So I'm wondering if you could share that with us.
1: Yeah, well, it's much more complicated just because of the source materials we've got. We've got a very narrow window, which actually makes telling the story really a lot simpler because everything we know about these witches really is committed within this this period from the 1st of July 1682 where Temperance Lloyd is you know uh, accused of witchcraft and the 25th of August 1682 when the women hang as heavy tree outside the walls of Exeter so we've got this brief window into their lives what sources do we have we've got three trial pamphlets one of them is drawn almost entirely out of the interrogations that they had in Biddeford by the Justices of the Peace. So, in a sense, that is our strongest and our best link to them because we are hearing, I think, pretty much verbatim what was levelled against them, and they're often halting replies. The other two are are not such great sources, let's let's be said. And then we have as a, a ballad, that was sung about them to the to the tune of Fortune My Foe. So you get this brief explosion of printing around them, these four different publications, and then silence. We've got um, the the earlier record of Temperance Lloyd's trial at Exeter in the Assizes of 1671. What we don't have is the actual trial records for 1682. So what we've got to go on there really which is better evidence than most of the pamphlets are the letters of the north brothers who were on the assizes. Uh one brother was one of the judges. He didn't because he, he didn't try the case, but he wrote the report of it to the secretary of state in London and then his brother Writes an account some years distant as well, or a couple of accounts of it. So that's the only glimpse we actually get of the court case. So we don't have, if you like, the smoking gun for what for what gets them to the gallows. But what does what we know does get them to the gallows is the fact that unlike in Temperance Lloyd's case in 1671, they all um, say that they're guilty. They all confess. And that is literally their fatal mistake. In terms you asked about Temperance Lloyd's confession, well, we've got a pretty good pamphlet account of their last words on on the gallows. And Temperance Lloyd's words are particularly stark and are particularly, well, poignant in essence, because when you look beyond the sort of laconic question and answer answer sort of way they're put down on the on the printed page you realize that what happened was her two sisters have hanged before her she's saved as a sort of final act she motions to go up the the uh ladder um to the hangman and she's pulled back by the Justices of the Peace, the Sheriff of Exeter, and she's re-questioned. The Reverend Hannah's has already had a go, and she's answered unsatisfactorily, so they go at her again. And what she says is, is very nuanced and I think speaks really well for her because she's trying to think it out. She's thinking out, well, I have been a great sinner. I did say those words to the child that died, but I couldn't raise storms. I never did that. I didn't make a boy tumble out of a crow's nest while at sea. I couldn't do any of those things that I've been accused of, and I've never thought of it. So I think she... She manages in her last minutes to interject an air of sort of disquiet into the whole proceedings that the authorities do not get a clear-cut admission. And that is the beginning of the witch's rehabilitation, both over the course of the, the, uh, the 18th century and beyond.
2: So I'd love to ask you about that, because, of course, the book is titled The Last Witches of England, so following um this trial and the hanging of the three women to what extent did accusations of witchcraft end after this
1: Well they don't end as such and I think it's important to think that they, they get they get monumentally unlucky because the The high-end intellectual debates over the science of demons, demonology, are all raging at this period. And it's is—it's all up for grabs. The Anglican Church is desperately insecure during this period. And the proof of witches seems to be, for, for clergymen like Joseph Glanville, a proof of God. And he makes this he, he makes this statement that basically if you take witches out of the Bible, what are you going to take next out of Christian belief? Are you going to end up on a high road to atheism where everything is up for grabs and God's power is shorn back and back and back till he becomes a cipher? So we've got this battle going on from those who were favouring this idea of the imminent God, the Old Testament God who would be familiar to, to certainly any Puritan, you know the God who intervenes directly in human affairs, who seeks to work through providences so if a drunk falls into the river and gets drowned, that's a sign of God's judgement, and I mean, similarly something like that actually happened at Biddeford uh, a couple of years previously where some poor unfortunate was struck by lightning, and this was seen even in the town council records as a providence by God, and and then the move by others to a far more uh, transcendent God, the God maybe we're more familiar of, certainly in the Church of England setting today, the God who was once inextricably in, uh, involved in human affairs through the sufferings of the, the tribes of Israel and through all the pages of the Old Testament all through the life of Jesus. But whom now has sort of stepped away from human affairs, and works at sort of one, two, three, uh, removes from humanity. So this this intellectual battle is going on, and this is against, of course, the background of the of Cartesian thought, which is suggesting a God who is far more transcendent, a far more mechanistic view of the world. So the the Tory intellectuals, these are people who've been to a large extent brutalized by their experience of loss in the Civil War, are fighting a furious rearguard action. And conversely, it's people like John Webster, the sort of completely countercultural, religious mystic, alchemist, one-time physician to Cromwell's army who is the lone voice in the wilderness crying scepticism through this period and the irony is he's ignored and you can see it actually in the disdain for recent revisionist academics for his career oh well he's not a great intellectual he's a man of the people we want to look at these wonderful people in the royal society who are having these truly academic discourses so he's disdained ironically whereas you know the the Glanvilles of these world are, are kind of elevated, so that battle is going on, and it takes a long time to work itself out. However, I think in terms of your primary question about the level of prosecution. The witches are still being brought in for these kind. You know, the the jail delivery books do not show a sudden collapse. What changes is the attitude of the judiciary. So, sixteen sixty two, we get Sir Matthew Hale, one of the great legal brilliant minds of the Restoration period, admi- allowing spectral evidence in court, and using physicians, using science to argue for the science of demons. Now, there's this idea of spectral evidence, which manifests itself, no pun intended, in the Salem trials, uh, to great and devastating effect, that you can have somebody saying, you know, uh, an accuser saying, I can see the summoned demons in front of me in the courtroom. They are present. I see them moving around. And that would be Admissible evidence. Now, this all changes through the work of Sir John Holt, who I think is probably one of the, you know, the only man who I think qualifies as a heroic figure in my book. And Holt is Holt is a phenomenal figure as far as I'm concerned in the history of the judiciary. He's a bit equivocal. He, on one hand, he defends, when no one else will, Sir William Russell for treason against Charles II, but at the same time, he's taking cases to support Charles II's assaults on local government. So he's hedging his bet a bit in the 1680s. By the 1700s, he's somebody who is stopping the spread of slavery to England, One of his judgments halts the spread of slavery and frees an an African slave who jumped ship in England, which is, you know, a pretty landmark judgment. And then, in the case of uh, of witchcraft um, suspected on the South Bank in Southwark and London. Around a woman with a wonderful surname of either More Duck or More dyke, depending which case you get, and her heroism helps him because she never admits, even though the mob bloodier, cut her, pull a lot of her hair out, stamp her onto the ground, she still protests her, her innocence. And what Holt does is he he can't he can't because it's still on the statute book. Overturned the whole apparatus of the legal justification for witchcraft, but what he does is he undermines it. He rules spectral evidence out of order, and he then prosecutes the woman's accusers, so the apprentices, the suede heads, the sort of bully boys, and the soldiers who run at a ground and Beat her up and assault her. He has done for common assault, and he has them done for um, making fraudulent accusations, and he has them whipped through the city of London. So he manages to turn the whole procedure of witch hunting on their head. On its head, and I think that is a stronger blow against witchcraft than almost anything um, in English legal history.
2: Hmm. I'm really glad you mentioned um, Sir John Holt because I found him absolutely fascinating Um, and particularly for not just the kind of, okay, taking away some of the specific legal bits that did allow it, as you said, the spectral evidence, but also kind of then turning the legal system on the accusers um, very much as kind of the next logical step, but also quite a big one to make as well. So um, I'm glad that uh, you've explained a little bit about him. Obviously, there is more detail in the book. Um, but kind of within the discussion on sort of what changes conceptions of witches and uh, bringing the accusations, uh, that's a really helpful understanding of kind of the legal aspects um, the judiciary, etc. But you also talk about in the book about the impact of the new poor law um, on the figure of the witch in the community and therefore discussions of witchcraft. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about what impact that had.
1: Well, I mean jumping ahead a bit, the 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 Biddeford case is all to do with poverty. When John Watkins wrote his History of Biddeford at the time of the French Revolutionary Wars, he still talks about Biddeford as being a place of witches. There are Victorian newspaper reports of witchery happening, happening down by the quaysides. There are recognisable witch figures if you like in in Devon. You know, um Marianne Voden gets herself into print, into novels, um, because she is seen as a white witch, and this is this is really late. This is this is you know um, late Victorian period. So the witch figure doesn't just disappear from the countryside. Certainly doesn't disappear from Devon, but things change and the relations to poverty certainly do. So what the new poor law does is effectively it criminalises poverty and it removes the witch figures as they appear and locks them up in the Bastilles, the poorhouses. So Marianne Voden and some of her sisters who were carrying on sort of uh, folk magic, if you like, little bits of healing, sort of cunning folk, um... Um, experiences that we all know from Owen Davis's wonderful book on popular magic—they're actually being removed from the community, and incarcerated, scrubbed clean. You know, in the in the records around Marianne Vodan, there is an obsession about her being clean in the In the poorhouse, so that if you like, acts as a lightning rod, it removes the figure it reco it removes the source of discord, and actually, I think, in committing the three Biddeford witches for trial at Exeter, the local justices of the peace in Biddeford were primarily concerned with getting them as quickly as they could out of their local setting so the witch hunters couldn't effectively privatize justice the, lo- the 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 leaders of the social elite were concerned that their power was on the ebb tide and they had to do something about it simply removing the witch was one way to it and the new poor law certainly did that across england and wales in the you know in the victorian period
2: Mm, I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, and I do think there is a parallel with what was done um, earlier with Temperance Lloyd um, and the other two women as well. So I'm, I'm glad that that connection sort of makes sense. Um, we're coming to the end of uh, our time. Obviously, you've uh, very helpfully explained to us um, a lot of the key points in the book, though I will say again that uh, the book itself obviously has a lot more detail in it. So listeners are encouraged to um, read the book in full if they're interested. Um, But I'm curious, before I let you go, uh, the book came out last year in 2021. Um, So if I can ask, what have you been, what are you working on now or what's your next project? I'm
1: working on a study of Gerald Gardner, the founder of modern witchcraft, effectively, or revived witchcraft in the Isle of Man. And then I'm doing a little guide for Cambridge University Press on him in their Elements and Magic uh, series, so those are the next two off the off the kind of runway, and then there's some other projects with Bloomsbury that will will come to fruition probably in time. And pro- but probably they'll be back to sort of early modern witchcraft, so that's where I'm at at the moment.
2: Fair enough. Uh, That sounds very interesting. Um, Best of luck with those projects. But while you are off working on them, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which as a reminder is titled The Last Witches of England, The Tragedy of Sorcery and Superstition, published by Bloomsbury in 2021. Dr. John Callow, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure, Miranda. It's been wonderful. Thank you.